0: Well, right now, I'd like to welcome our guest, Michael Zweig. Michael, thank you for joining us. Uh, Thank you very much for having me. Always great to have you. And um, just to remind folks, Michael is an economist. He's a labor historian, professor emeritus at Stony Brook University. He's an activist. He's an author of numerous books and articles, including The Working Class Majority, America's Best Kept Secret, and What's Class Got to Do With It? Michael, I understand you're working on a new project. Perhaps you will reveal it if you care to tonight. I am dying to know the title. I love your titles. So well,
1: it's uh, this title is is uh, called "Pass It On," a contribution to intergener- intergenerational learning uh, for social justice. And the idea is to convey to a young generation of activists who are coming up all across the board in so many different areas challenging the, you know the system or challenging capitalism or promoting some democratic socialist or socialist ideas uh, i'm trying to convey to people who are doing that how the system actually works and what underlies it as an economy, as a structure of oppression, as a structure of exploitation, and how race and class uh, arise in the United States together, and and, uh, you can't really do class politics without engaging race politics, and you can't do race without doing class and engaging those things uh, somehow simultaneously, uh, each respecting the other. Uh, but also each understanding it's in relation with the other. So uh, that's what I'm trying to do, and um, it's written. It's 82,000 words, and I'm uh, tracking down a publisher if I can find one.
0: I wish you great good luck on that. The book sounds amazing. can't wait to read it. Well, Michael, we've invited you here again tonight as we do Whenever we have a question about labor history, labor economy, and the struggles of working people to obtain their rights and uh, be able to uh, move forward toward uh, real victories. So, as I mentioned earlier to our listeners, uh, I encountered this article in uh, Huffington Post. Uh, The author is David Jamelesson. And the uh, title is, Biden has a chance to boost unions... With new labor board appointments, and that labor board being the National Labor Relations Board, so among other things, we'd like you to assess the viability of his contention that a lot can be accomplished with a democratic majority board, and th- so that we'll, you know we're gonna, we're gonna definitely deconstruct that a bit. But since we're talking about the National Labor Relations Board which was formulated in 1936 during the New Deal. It would behoove us, I think, to tap your knowledge of the origins of that, what role it has played over the decades through the the New Deal, the Depression, World War II, and then in in the Cold War years, following the passage of the Taft-Hartley Act, which dealt a mortal blow to labor, and up into into the new uh, or the neoliberal era uh, when Ronald Reagan was elected. But let's start with the article. The author maintains, as I said, that much can be done just by changing board policy on a lot of issues and trying trying to undo the damage that Trump did. So I guess we have to sort of know what damage he did do, and what's the strategy that would function on the board to not only undo those things, but actually promote new initiatives that would help workers?
1: Well, that's a broad agenda for our conversation. (laughs) Yeah, Uh,
0: (coughs) 25 Uh, minutes.
1: Yeah, well, let's just start with what the National Labor Relations Board is. It is a a presidential appointed group of uh, people, uh, five members, and these members are appointed by the president and approved by Congress by the Senate. It requires Senate approval. And these uh, members of the National Labor Relations Board are basically uh, uh, arbiters or judicial sort of quasi-judicial administrators of the labor law that uh, created the National Labor Relations Board, which was the National Labor Relations Act in 1935 that for the first time gave government protection to workers organizing a union so the law the national Labor relations act gave these protections to workers so that management couldn't fire you if you were uh... organizing a union they couldn't give you a uh, you know a bad shift or transfer you to some uh... other location as punishment for union work all that <clears throat> was uh, said to be illegal and workers had the right to hold elections and to bring a union in to represent them if the workers voted for that union in an election. And the National Labor Relations Board has, among other of its responsibilities, monitoring and organizing those elections where workers make uh, their attempt to uh, organize into unions. So the National Labor Relations Board is an important and powerful institution There is a national board, but then there are also regional boards in D.C. and New York City and San Francisco that handle things in those local or broad geographic areas. And the National Labor Relations Board is composed of people basically who have experience in labor relations, either on management side or on labor side. So there are law firms that specialize in defending unions in their attempts to organize. And then there are law firms that uh, represent management in their attempts to resist unions. And those things are fought out as legal matters. And uh, the National Labor Relations Board is appoint- has appointees who typically come out of either the management side or the labor side of the uh, legal processes, So, typically, when Democrats are in power and have the ability to appoint people to the board, they tend to appoint people who come out of the labor side, uh, labor representation in those conflicts. Uh, And when Republicans are there, they tend to appoint management representatives in the legal structures. And so you have a very political uh, process of deciding... A number of very important questions. For example, the law says that uh, employees can organize a union with the protection of the National Labor Relations Board. Fine. Well, who's an employee? If you are working as a, a dishwasher in a, man, in a McDonald's franchise in Bridgeport are you an employee of the franchise owner or are you an employee of mcdonald's well that's a question you know and you can answer that question if you're on the labor side you'll say you're an employee of mcdonald's if you're on the management side you'll try to free mcdonald's from that obligation and make the employee only deal with their own franchise owner well the trump uh... Cor- uh board ruled in disputes of that sort that the employee was an employee of the franchise only not of the parent company so that makes it much more difficult to organize uh, mcdonald's workers or people who are working in popeyes or any other kind of uh, national chain if you are in a um, uh, democratically controlled board, the tendency would be to say, no, you're obligated to uh, negotiate all the way up to uh, McDonald's as a parent company. So here's another question. Uh, You've got uh, graduate students who are teaching courses, and they're taking classes to get their PhD, and meanwhile, they're teaching freshman uh, sections of classes, or they're teaching lectures of their own. Are those workers Are those uh, graduate students, are they employees or not? Well, there's a whole history of back and forth on this, and uh, Democratic-dominated boards have ruled that uh, those employees are employees, those graduate students. Yes, they're students, but they are actually, for purposes of the act, employees, and they have the protection of organizing a union. Republican-dominated boards... Tend to reverse that and say, no, no, those graduate students, yes, they work, yes, they teach, yes, they're important to the health and the pros, uh, prospects of the university that they work for, but really they're not workers, they're graduate students. And so they don't have protections. So those are the kinds of questions among others that, uh, that come up, uh, you know, can, can, uh, Can a union representative go on the company's parking lot and hand out leaflets? Or is that trespassing and the company can keep them away? Well, Democratic boards tend to say that the company cannot keep workers from meeting with union representatives as long as it doesn't interfere with the workers doing their jobs. Well, Republicans tend to say, and Trump's appointees tend to say, no, you can't do that. If you're uh, coming on private property, you can be thrown off and you have no recourse. So, you know, there's a a million kinds of things uh, of that sort that come up all the time. And the National Labor Relations Board ultimately decides those things and either gives workers a right to a union or doesn't, gives workers protection to organize, or they take that protection away. So those are very deep and important questions for workers, and yes, the article is correct that the National Labor Relations Board can make quite a difference, and it will make a difference. Right now, uh, the board is, uh inherited from Trump is three to one Republicans. If, if Biden gets to appoint the two people he's got in mind, one for a vacancy and one for a Republican who's leaving. Then it'll be three to two for Democrats, and that will transform the legal environment uh, or the administrative environment for unions and for workers trying to organize unions and negotiate contracts. So that's very, very important. On the other hand, if the National Labor Relations Board makes a decision and either side doesn't like it, they can go to court and they can say, no, no, the National Labor Relations Board is wrong in its interpretation of the law, is wrong in its understanding of the facts of the case, and then the matter is not decided any longer by the board, but its decisions are reviewable by the federal courts. Well, now you get into not only what is the board, but what is the court system, and who is dominating the court system. So... There are limits to what the National Labor Relations Board can do, and there are limits to the implications of a presidential appointment to a majority of the board, but it's not nothing. Let's uh, leave it at that for the moment.
0: Well said. The question I have, just is just a technical one. In making these appointments, does Joe Biden need to get a supermajority to approve them, or is it a simple majority?
1: I think, it's a, I think it's a simple majority, but I really don't know all the intricacies of the Senate uh, Senate rules. Right. Maybe it's a super—I I don't know.
0: So what strikes me about this, and probably our, our listeners as well, is how, what's the word, fragile these decisions and difficult to implement these decisions, decisions are, given the court challenges that you mentioned, are that the board makes, you know, the pendulum swings— from Obama to Trump back to Biden and every 4 years the progress that has been made is either turned back or improved upon but it's a, it's a moving target and so as we make one sojourn back to 1936 when the National Labor Relations Board was so effective in really transforming the uh, fate of industrial workers in, in this country. What do you make of that? Is there anything that is, what, what should we say, be the, the bedrock <coughs> principles of the NLRB that cannot be tampered with by the, the members and their political complexion? And I know a lot of this changed with the Taft-Hartley Act, but is there, is there anything that we can regard as uh, the baseline for uh, labor rights for workers. Well, I would say
1: that if you go back to the passage of the National Labor Relations Act in 1935, um, the, so, which is also sometimes called the Wagner Act that set up these uh, protections for workers to organize unions and also uh, uh, set up the National Labor Relations Board to administer all that, it was in the climate, it was in a climate of labor insurgency that was going on all around the country. In 1934, there was a general strike of longshoremen in the Bay Area. There was also a general strike in uh, in uh, Minneapolis uh, that organized Teamsters up there. There was a huge strike of garment workers up and down the East Coast of se- several hundreds of thousands of garment workers out for months. They lost, but they were s- really gave capital a scare. And so There was a Bolshevik revolution that people were worried about. There was fascism on the rise that the ruling class was worried about. And they needed to sort of give something to workers to keep them kind of in the fold of the system and show that the system could really provide. But that was in the context of very strong labor insurgency and it was in that context that the national labor relations board provided openings for workers and then it wasn't really until 1937 after roosevelt won in that massive landslide in 1936 with tremendous labor support that there was a possibility that workers saw wow we can really make a difference we can really do something here and then you had this big upsurge in the auto industry and steel and meat packing and electrical uh, equipment uh, production, uh, General Electric and so on, Westinghouse. All of that stuff got organized in 37, 38, and what you had was the strength of the NLRB and its regulations grew out of the strength of that labor movement. And now the labor movement is quite weak, and it isn't a general presence in the society. And even in Biden's election, A, it wasn't a whole sweep the way that uh, Roosevelt was in 1936. And also, Biden was not the candidate of workers. It didn't feel like, ah, finally the working class has got some power. That wasn't the cultural moment that we were in. And so the National Labor Relations Board, operates in that general climate and does not have the social context to do really progressive and organized militant uh, campaigning so that I think is the ultimate underlying lesson is if you don't have that social movement you don't have administrative and legal um, judgments That will support workers who are not in motion because they don't have power.
0: What's your opinion of Marty Walsh, former somewhat pro-labor mayor of Boston?
1: He's the secretary of labor in the cabinet that Biden appointed uh, in that position. Okay. And he he does come out of the building trades in uh, Boston. He's very pro-union, very pro-labor. He's not exactly a radical. He's not a militant socialist socialist. you know, trade union organizer. But he is definitely a pro labor, you know, let's have unions, let's support unions, let's protect workers type of guy. And the National Labor Relations Board uh, operates in the overall umbrella of the Department of Labor.
0: Finally, Michael, let's bring it back to the Protect Workers' Right to Organize Act, the PRO Act. Right. Which is uh, right now sort of waiting like a big container ship in, in, in the, gl- the clogged up Senate where uh, Mitch McConnell's impacted, or should I say uh, constipated filibuster maneuvers are keeping everything at a standstill. You know, how much more would the PRO Act protect and accomplish for workers than just this shift in complexion on the board Well, I think
1: that, uh, if it's, if it's the law that a worker in a franchise is the joint employee of the franchise owner and the parent company, if that's the law, then that settles it. And the U.S. Supreme Court would probably have a hard time figuring out why that's unconstitutional. Maybe they could work their way around that. Maybe they would ultimately declare such a law a violation of the property rights of McDonald's. Who knows? But certainly, having it be legislation and having it be the will of Congress signed by the president would give it a whole lot more weight and authority. And the National Labor Relations Board, even a Republican board, would not be able to uh, rule to the contrary because they're guided by the law. So that kind of thing, uh, I think, would be uh, very, very important uh, if the PRO Act ultimately passed. And there are a lot of elements of the PRO Act that uh, would be very beneficial and would structure and focus the rulings of the National Labor Relations Board because they would be constrained in their rulings by what the law says.
0: Very good. And just want to remind listeners that I talked to Michael about the pro act several months ago. I think we were the first news outlet anywhere in the country to even mention it Wow, yeah, i well, because i i waited I waited for weeks for democracy now to talk about it and and Jacobin and all these other and took them took them three two or three weeks after our discussion to do it, and then it started to crop up on occasionally on. Chris Hayes Good. on MSNBC. Well, you know,
1: you're out there at the forefront of these discussions, uh, Richard, and it's, uh, it's a great thing for the listeners of WPKN to have that uh, uh, resource to be able to get into some of these questions.
0: Michael, it's always a pleasure to have you on. Just to mention your new book, which is called Pass It On. Is that yeah,
1: Pass It On.
0: Pass It On, yeah. and pub date to be determined, but it uh, looks like it's, inevitable. <laughs> well,
1: you know, I, uh, we'll see. Uh, we'll see. Uh, you know, it's it's an interesting conversation with different publishers about uh, whether they'll take it or they won't take it or what the issues are, that uh, what they like, what they don't like. And that's a whole other discussion, which we can maybe have sometime.
0: Beautiful. Michael, have a great rest of the uh, evening, and let's talk again soon.
1: Yeah, well, thank you very much, which is always a pleasure. Anytime uh, that I can... Uh, uh, come on, help you out, and uh, our listeners to understand something or other. I'd be happy to do it.
0: You, you know, I do take advantage of that very generous offer. Thank you, Michael. Uh, good okay. night. Okay. Uh, take good care. Night. Bye.